I am holding in my hand a microfilm of very highly confidential secret State Department documents. These documents were fed out of the State Department over 10 years ago by communists who were employees of that department and who were interested in seeing that these documents were sent to the Soviet Union, where the interests of the Soviet Union happened to be in conflict with those of the United States. Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Lafroides. Uh, today we talk about the Alger Hiss case, how, how then-Congressman Nixon investigated accused communist spy in the United States, Alger Hiss. Here with us to talk about it is Irv Gelman. Uh, Irv Gelman has joined the program before. He's the author of The Contender, Richard Nixon, uh, the uh, Congress years, 1946 to 1952, and The President and the Apprentice, Eisenhower and Nixon, 1952 to 1961. His latest book, which is now up for a Plutarch Prize. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Gelman. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start um, with a little bit of background on the Hiss case. Uh, Whitaker Chambers, the lead witness uh, in the case, wrote a book appropriately and he talks about a communist network in the United States government and society at large. Uh, how, how pervasive and active was the Communist Party or network in the United States? Uh, it was active. It was uh, pervasive in many ways. It was uh, uh, very good, uh, if not better than very good, at infiltrating important uh, parts of government agencies. And you have to remember that many of these people that ultimately became spies for the Soviet Union uh, entered the Communist Party and the conspiracy that they were part of uh, during the Depression when uh, communism and socialism and various other isms were far more uh, uh, favorable to people than they uh, are today. And, and how did they operate? In what uh, and how detrimental were they? Well, first, they were incredibly detrimental. Uh, as we'll probably talk about a little later, uh, these spies helped uh, the Russians uh, develop the out-of-bomb, the jet, jet plane, and other uh, military equipment. But usually what they did was they operated through cell organizations that were in touch with and or independent of others. They were uh, either uh, run out of uh, Moscow uh, directly to the United States, run out of the United States Communist Party, uh, and or uh, were directed by various handlers who would uh, either get information from them or ask them for the type of information they needed. What ultimately led... House of Representatives to uh, really start cracking down on them and forming a, uh, a committee on this, the House, America, House on American Activities Committee. Well, uh, better known as HUAC, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, had actually formed during World War II uh, uh, for both uh, uh, adversarial relationships towards Nazism as well as communism. Uh, you have to understand that uh, before World War II, there was as much opposition to Hitler as there was to Stalin. 
And the nature of the change in relationship was really a matter of convenience. Uh, Hitler became uh, the evil, uh, unrepentant enemy, and uh, Stalin, because he was fighting the Nazis, uh, became our ally. And uh, President Nixon, he or then Congressman Nixon, gets elected in 1946, um, and then he has a couple of committee assignments early on in 1947. He's on education and labor, um, joins the Herder Committee to review the Marshall Plan. Um, how, did he, how did he come to join uh, HUAC? And is it something that he lobbied for? How did, how did he become a member? Well, there, there are a whole series of uh, maybes. Uh, he says he did not lobby. Other people say he did lobby. Uh, my basic feeling is, is that uh, because at this time the Republicans become the majority party in the House, uh, the leadership appointed him on the committee because uh, he was a lawyer and they felt that his legal skills uh, would be helpful. Uh, as far as whether he wanted to be, it seems to me because of the mixed reputation uh, that uh, HUAC had, it was going on a committee with a double-edged sword. And how did he ultimately embrace his role? Um, you talk about the double-edged sword, the, uh, you know, the accusations of McCarthyism um, and that sort of thing. How did, how did Nixon come to embrace his role on, on HUAC? Nixon was always charged by his adversaries with McCarthyism. Uh, it was never true, but if you were a Democrat and you wanted to needle Nixon and or make him look uh, bad in front of the public eyes, you would charge him with being a McCarthy clone. Uh, Democrats did that with uh, many Republicans, and uh, the ability for them to do it with Nixon was uh, no great secret. What Nixon did, and what Nixon did very effectively, was manage his role on HUAC as a very careful investigator and very careful uh, not to make charges uh, uh, and or accusations unless he could back them up with substantive evidence. Many of the people uh, on the UAC committee uh, uh, were very much loose cannons, uh, like Representative uh, Rankin from Alabama, who would talk and use derogatory names towards Jews and towards African Americans, or Pernell Thomas, who ended up being the chairman and going to jail uh, for uh, using money in his congressional office illegally. Now to the, the main subject of this podcast, um, Alger Hiss. Who was he? Uh, what was his background? Well, Alger Hiss uh, was uh, an uh, ideal pinup, maybe, for the Ivy League. Uh, he was raised in a relatively uh, elitist home. It was a, a very troubled home with his father committing suicide and other of his relatives committing suicide. He went to Johns Hopkins for his undergraduate degree uh, and went to Harvard for his law degree. Uh, after that, he moved into 
the Agricultural Adjustment Administration uh, to work on uh, agriculture, and then finally moved over to the State Department, where he ultimately became secretary uh, at the Yalta Conference with uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Winston Churchill, and Stalin, and ultimately goes to the UN Conference in uh, San Francisco as, uh, again, a high-ranking member of the U.S. delegation. And how did he become the subject of a congressional investigation? Uh, actually, there was a series before him in 1948 where uh, there are various former uh, spies that come forward. The most uh, well-known was Elizabeth Bentley, who made all kinds of uh, charges that uh, no one could substantiate. So to substantiate the charges, they brought a uh, uh, repentant, if you will, Whit Whitaker Chambers, who had worked for the Soviet Union in the 30s and had abandoned their cause and ultimately became an uh, editor at Time magazine. And um, how, did, how did Nixon ultimately become the lead, uh, the lead investigator of all the members of, of HUAC? Well, it was really quite strange. Uh, Chambers had testified. Uh, he was not a very attractive man. As a matter of fact, you could call him uh, unattractive. Uh, he was dressed, uh, and he looked disheveled. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, overweight. He kind of sort of mumbled. Uh, he was not what you would call a very good witness. But during his testimony, he claimed that Alger Hiss was not a communist spy, but a member of a communist underground organization. Uh, he uh, was careful uh, not to make any accusations of spying uh, at that time. When uh, Hiss found out that uh, Chambers had identified him uh, as a member of a communist cell, uh, he announced that he wanted to clear his name in front of uh, the uh, uh, HUAC uh, organization. He testified. He did it very boldly. Uh, you could uh, include him as being braggadocia and said that uh, he had never heard of Whitaker Chambers. He didn't know what he was. And it happened that Carl Munt shared that meeting, and uh, his said that uh, Chambers looked somewhat like Carl Munt, the chairman of the committee. And when this first uh, interview was over with Hiss, there were members of HUAC that went up and shook his hand and really did not want to uh, pursue it any further. Let's, Nixon felt let's go back to um, Chambers for a second. Um, Nixon, you had mentioned that he wasn't the best-looking witness out there. Um, Nixon said uh, he looked at him and could hardly believe he was the government witness. Can you give a little bit of a background on Whitaker Chambers, and, and why did he ultimately defect from communism? Well, the, the background of Chambers 
was that he did not come from a, a wonderful home. He went to uh, Columbia University, an Ivy League, major Ivy League school. Uh, he wrote. Uh, uh, he ended up uh, uh, taking a, a series of jobs. He had a, a checkered sexual uh, past. Uh, he uh, uh became the head of a, a underground communist cell organization. He became disenchanted uh, with the Communist Party and what they were doing. And by the 40s, he had become uh, an editor and a, uh, a reporter for Time magazine. And he was known when he left the Communist Party in the late 30s uh, to have abandoned uh, uh, the party had to recommend that the United States take a far more forceful uh, position against uh, 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 the Soviet Union. And moving back to the his uh, testimony, uh, Nixon set, felt strongly uh, that his was lying, and Chambers was actually credible. How did how did Nixon know? Not so much lying. Uh, Hiss, when he appears, was the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And John Foster Dulles, who ultimately becomes Secretary of State, was the man that pushed uh, Alger Hiss for the president of that organization, which was very uh, prodigious and uh, prestigious. He had great, great uh, standing in uh, the both academic and the peace community. But the amount of what Nixon looked at Hiss as was braggadocia. Example, uh, Hiss said he went uh, undergraduate degree to Johns Hopkins, and he took his uh, law degree at uh, uh, Harvard, and by the way, Mr. Nixon, you went to somewhere wittier. Uh, that didn't sit well with Nixon, and he felt that there was enough discrepancy uh, to, to continue the investigation to be certain that uh, uh, Chambers was not telling the truth or that Hiss was not telling the truth. He wasn't yet on the solid foundation he would be at after he interviewed both men again. Throughout the investigation, um, J. Edgar Hoover was restrained by President Truman from lending the FBI's help in the investigation. And President Truman, um, on his part, was um, really against um, really against the investigation altogether. Um, how, did, how did Nixon and the rest of HUAC compensate without the FBI's help and uh, did the administration overall obstruct the case, or at least try to? Well, again, the, the obstruction was not so much the, the idea of Truman trying to obstruct the case as much as he was trying to obstruct the bad news that uh, there were people like Alger Hiss in the federal government under Franklin Roosevelt and under him uh, that were communists 
and or communist spies. The other man that comes to, to mind is Harry Dexter White, who was also accused of being a communist spy who uh, Truman had appointed. And Truman was basically responding. His famous term was, it's a red herring. And the idea was that he was acting as a partisan who was protecting Democrats at the highest level against uh, Republican charges. The, um, there's a certain Catholic priest, uh, Father John France Cronin, a Sulpician that was introduced to Nixon, uh, an expert on communism. How did, how did he help? Uh, Cronin was a Catholic priest who the Catholic Church used as an expert in uh, the communist menace in the United States that wrote a long 140-some-page uh, report on various people that might have been or were uh, communists and being deleterious uh, to the uh, American Republic. Uh, Cronin met Nixon through various other people. Uh, Congressman uh, Charles Kearson was one of the main characters from Milwaukee who was a uh, vehement anti-communist. So uh, somewhere in 1947, before uh, these hearings, uh, uh, Nixon meets Cronin, and Cronin becomes a sort of a mentor to Nixon uh, in various communist uh, conspiracy thoughts. Moving to the case unfolding, um, you had mentioned some of the discrepancies his, his testimony. Um, could you could you talk about that? The discrepancies and how the case how the case unfolded over that uh, over that summer and throughout the year. Nixon was very disappointed that the committee had been, for want of a better word, sucked in uh, to Alger Hiss uh, with his performance. But Nixon was wondering. Uh, how has really never answered many of the questions. And did he really know or not know uh, Whitaker Chambers? What was his real role? And how in the world could these two uh, testimonies, the one from Chambers and the one from Hess, be at so much odds when Chambers seemed to be knowing various uh activities that both Alger and his wife Priscilla Hess uh, were involved in in the 30s. And who is this fictitious character Hiss talks about, a George Crosley? Well, in, in some ways it was really silly uh, because ultimately after uh, uh, Hiss and Chambers meet face-to-face, uh, Chambers uh, had, from uh, Hiss's standpoint, bad teeth, and he wanted Chambers to open his mouth up so he could examine his teeth, kind of like he was a dentist. And to Dixon and other people watching, this seemed relatively silly. And by the, the face-to-face confrontation between these two men 
and earlier some of the uh, interrogation that Nixon did of Chambers to get more information, specific information, on uh, one of the things was bird watching and some of the, the, the birds that Chambers uh, was told by Hiss that were just wonderful. And uh, uh, one of the congressmen asked Hiss about this, and he confirmed uh, not only that he was a bird watcher, but the specific uh, bird that, that Chambers had mentioned, they felt that they had it locked in, that certainly uh, uh, Chambers and his knew one another. When he used a AKA, uh, the George uh, Crosby person, uh, the whole story sounded phony. And from that point forward, Hiss just got himself into more and more trouble. And one of the things that you should mention to show Hiss's audacity, he didn't do have to do anything. All he had to do was say nothing. And maybe or maybe not, nothing would have transpired because of this. But he was so audacious that he stepped up and shot himself in his own foot. And the final nail in the coffin were the so-called pumpkin papers. Uh, can you explain what they were? Well, the pumpkin papers, uh, Chambers felt that at some point in time, he might need evidence that would show that he was doing various things uh, in the 30s. And so he kept some microfilm of material that Hiss had given him. And he lived on a farm in Westminster, Maryland, and he hollowed out a pumpkin in this pumpkin patch because he was afraid he was going to be assassinated and put this stuff there and directed investigators from Shuak where this material was. And once they got documents showing Hiss's handwriting, uh, it was just about over. So were they able to refer uh, the case to the Justice Department on, uh, on espionage charges? No, they were not. They referred the case to the, the Justice Department, but the statute at that time, uh, uh, espionage charges had run past the statute of limitations. What they ultimately convicted Hiss of in federal court was perjury. And what, what ultimately happened to him? Did he serve time? He went to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, federal prison for five or six years. Wow. Right. And, uh, and what, happened to the, what happened with the rest of his life? Well, he kept on telling people uh, until he passed away and his uh, supporters taught told people after and before he passed away that Nixon had unfairly uh, attacked him and he was innocent and uh, he had been charged and he went to prison uh, and it wasn't uh, uh, something that really should have happened because the man suffered uh, from this persecution. But what they uh, didn't admit to and uh, try to avoid even to this day is what they didn't know, and what wasn't released until the 1990s, 
what were called the Venona intercepts, which was intercepts of Soviet material that had been decrypted, but no one knew it, and no one knew how many charges that were being made uh, during uh, the Truman administration, how many of these people really were violating American laws, providing the Soviet Union with uh, material. But the real nail in the coffin that really closed it out was a book called Spies by uh, uh, Harvey Clare, John Haynes, and I think Val, uh, Alexander Velisyov. Velisyov had special access to KGB files and found uh, Alger Hiss's name mentioned as an agent. And the first chapter in the spy's book is called Case Closed, which basically said, if anybody doubts that Alger Hiss was a spy, it's over. He wasn't being persecuted. He was being uh, uh, unfaithful uh, to his uh, position as a government employee and passing on secrets to the Soviet Union. And even today, uh, this very moment, there are people that still hold that Alger Hiss was innocent. They're just fewer and fewer people, but... If it's a choice between believing that Richard Nixon acted honorably and or Alger Hiss was being persecuted, they still prefer to think that uh, Hiss uh, deserves some kind of pass. I don't quite understand that, but uh, those uh, individuals that are so... Uh, anti-Nixon, probably have some kind of a a twisted position on what their uh, rationale is. Uh, Quite frankly, I don't get it. You had said earlier that being on HUAC was a double-edged sword. Uh, Nixon later said that his success on the hit case, his case, was almost a a bittersweet moment for him, Um, and something that would determine the rest of his career. Can, can you explain? Again, uh, Richard Nixon, throughout his career, has been maligned for many things that he never did. And this is just once in a whole series. Uh, example, when he ran for the first time against the popular incumbent congressman, Jerry Voorhees, uh, there are Uh, charges that unnamed people would call up during the end of the campaign. Did you know Jerry Voorhees was a communist? There's no evidence to support this, but again, it's been used time and time again uh, to point out that Nixon uh, uh, did these uh, evil things. Same is true with uh, uh, when he ran for the U.S. Senate against Helen Hagen Douglas and called her, quote-unquote, the Pink Lady. Uh, he never publicly called her the Pink Lady. I examined just about every major newspaper at that time, 
And he's never reported in public calling her the pink lady. Sometimes in private, he was frustrated, and he said uh, to one of his aides, she was pink down to her underwear. But to claim that he went around calling her the pink lady is just deceitful. Now, if you are going to go after Alger Hiss as part of the scenario that Nixon deserves to be considered a uh, deceitful person who is not worth trustworthiness, then you go and say that Nixon persecuted Alger Hiss and he went to prison and he didn't deserve to go to prison. Well, today, that has to stop. The one nail in his coffin about treating Alger Hiss unfairly is gone. But that doesn't mean it ends the story. The story has been told so wrong for so long that you have Nixon being charged with various things that he didn't do. Obviously, he was a partisan Republican who spoke very well and spoke to a partisan audience. He has enough things that Democrats or opponents can say that is grist for the mill. But the idea of making charges that are simply unfounded is something that Nixon uh, antagonists throw out and expect uh, people to accept as unquestioned. And last question, what brought your research and writing, what was the most revealing thing that you found about the Hiss case? Again, it's all part of the larger story. The story is how Nixon rose from uh, literal obscurity uh, to becoming uh, the vice president, and then the president. And how unfairly, if that's a good word, he had been treated by a great deal of the press. And the nature of uh, how these myths and perceptions of what happened and never happened have become part of the reality, whether they were real or uh, not. And it's disheartening to me to see my colleagues, both as journalists and as academics, just to take various things about Nixon, which are easily provable wrong, accepted as fact. Dr. Gelman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your time.